Some people view chance encounters and chance opportunities as sheer luck. Others will assert that such occurrences are in fact divine providence. Still others say that unexpected magic simply happens all the time. But what do you say? What do you call unexpected possibilities for life changes? Well, at least one American prefers the term serendipity. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh, my life, watching America. Oh, my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. When I was a child, I would occasionally hear grown-ups talking about some lady. But this lady, I thought, had a particular name. You see, I thought her name was Sarah Dippity. Obviously, I had it wrong. But I would discover later, when I became an adult, that when people at least encountered Serendipity, they were glad to meet her. We say just happens. Well, so they say. Well, this didn't just happen. We actually sought out Neil J. Farber. Now, who is Neil J. Farber? Well, he's a very, very favoured and highly valued medical physician. He has written a book called Serendipity, utilising everyday unexpected events to improve your life and your career. Now, I should point out that Dr. Farber is a professor emeritus of clinical medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's also been an internal practitioner of medicine as a physician for over 40 years, having just recently retired. He is the recipient of numerous accolades, probably too many to mention at this time, and serves not only um, in a variety of capacities, also with science and space museums, but also... He has served as a member of the Federal Drug Administration, make that FDA's, Non-Prescriptive Drug Advisory Committee. Now, I should point out also that he received his medical degree in 1976 from the University of Pennsylvania, and prior to that, cum laude, yes, from Franklin and Marshall College in 1972. For bringing us to the present, he's with us today. Welcome, Dr. Jay Farber. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, let me ask you um, about the motivation for writing the book. You state that um, you were, from what we understand, presumably quite uh, uh, comfortable in your bed one evening, and then you sprung out of bed with the idea that you had to write this book. Tell us about that moment. Yes. I I mean, it was really strange. I I had uh, done approximately 60 uh, medical research articles in my career. Um, and many of my peers and colleagues were urging me to write a book, sort of relating all of the information that I had encountered from doing that research. And, and I, I didn't feel that it was appropriate. Um, it was sort of a rehash of everything I had done and I, I just wasn't interested in doing that. Um, and then that one night uh, I woke at three in the morning and went, um, wow, I, I know now what I have to write. And, and I went into the other bedroom uh, so I wouldn't disturb my wife, turned on the light, wrote the outline for it, and then sat and thought, is, is this going to be worthwhile? And instantly realized that it was something I really did want to write because I wanted people to know about this. Well, academic uh, clinical writing is decidedly different from popular writing, which uh, your book would come under. Uh, And the main difference, obviously, is that you make the material a lot more accessible to persons than it would be otherwise. So um, it takes a different approach, a different style, a different mindset. Was that difficult for you initially or was it rather easy? Um, 
it was somewhat of a challenge. I, you know, all of the writing I had done was academic and, and um, medically oriented. But I sort of put myself into the, the mindset of what would a, an average person on the street want to know about this topic and, and went from there. I, I did get a lot of help from my, my publisher and the, the folks at my publishing house. So they were helpful in, in pointing me in the right direction several times. But the basic structure, I think, was what I was able to do based on understanding what people would want to hear. Well, my initial thought, uh, Dr. Farber, is that anyone who writes a book entitled Serendipity, um, by nature, I would assume, is rather an optimist and uh, has a very positive outlook. For many years, you lived in Philadelphia uh, before going to Southern California. I'm just curious, as far back as 1976, when you got your medical degree, were you by nature um, uh, inclined to see the glass as always half full and therefore being able to recognize opportunities, uh, be they serendipitous or otherwise? I, I think yes, partially. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things one needs to have is is a mindset that says an expectation that these things are going to come along because they do. But I think also as a physician, we're trained, uh, especially in, in internal medicine, trained with certain skills that allows you to recognize when a serendipitous moment has occurred. That is observational skills, being by nature very curious and being able to make connections. Uh, and all those things are, are necessary as well. Well, those are two cardinal principal parts of your book, uh, as you've just stated. The first part, observation and curiosity, which you see as very much connected. And then making the connections uh, between the, uh, if you will, the uh, knowledge that you're gathering and uh, the experience at the same time to bring to fruition hopefully something good, be it chicken wings or something more substantial like a, a cure to a disease. Um, let's just talk about those two ranges, if we may. We'll start with the, the, the mammoth serious issue of, uh, of learning to you know, uh, present things and entertain ideas that when pursued can give us penicillin, for instance, versus something seemingly light and frivolous and enjoyable like chicken wings. Tell us, first of all, the story of Alexander Fleming. So it's, it's one of my favorite stories in the book because he really needed to have all four of those skills uh, to be able to make this happen. Fleming was a both a physician as well as a microbiologist, and was studying uh, for his research the nature of staphylococci, which is one of the bacteria that causes a lot of infections, especially skin infections. And his theory was that staphylococci in the lab, which is where most people studied it, with a lid on a Petri dish was very different than staphylococci growing on skin. And so he, he set out to do the research by plating staphylococci on, on agar petri plates and leaving purposely leaving the lids off in his fairly sterile uh, lab environment in order to see what, what would happen, how they grow, et cetera. Well, accidentally, one of the workers in the lab opened a window while he was away for the weekend um, because he felt it was too stuffy in the lab. When Fleming got back, he, he looked at his plates and in horror realized that they were all infected basically with a mold that had come in through the window. And he started tossing the plates out um, because they were useless and needed to be regrown. When uh, an assistant walked in, he looked up and then happened to look back down at the plate and then suddenly realized that around each of the different spores of mold that was growing, there was a clear, small, clear ring. Um, and he got very curious as to what was going on, thinking, you know, why, why did this happen? What, how is this going on? Um, looked at it under a microscope and realized that the clear rings were clear because the bacteria in the clear area had died. And at the rim of each of those clear areas at the very edge, the bacteria were in the process of dying. Because of his knowledge of, of microbiology, he made the connection that the spores of mold on the plates had to be secreting something onto the agar plates that were killing the bacteria. 
and um, realized that this might be something very useful, started investigating it, and eventually, after several years, came up with penicillin. Well, the country's southern part of California, actually all of California, has the motto Eureka. I have found Mm -hmm. it. Um, Mm -hmm. How often is the Eureka experience associated with, if some people might call happenstance, or as you prefer to call it, serendipitous? My my belief, I can't prove it, but my belief is that basically it's happening on a regular basis to all of us. Uh, I know it has happened to me on a regular basis through my career and my life. And when I talked with others about the book after I had written it, they echoed that, yes, they they had similar experiences, that it was happening fairly frequently to them as well. I think the problem is that a lot of people don't have the skills to be able to recognize when some kind of significant event is happening. What are those skills? So if you come across something, I mean, it, it depends on what it is you come across. And, and I can't give you a specific order of how they develop, but basically it's it's the mindset that these things are happening fairly frequently and the mindfulness to be able to understand is this something that's going to be useful um, to myself and or to society as a whole. Um, It then requires also observational skills and not only visual observational skills, but auditory observational skills as well uh, to be able to recognize that there's something different about what's going on right now the curiosity to explore it, to say, why is this happening? Why, what, what's different about this? And then the ability to make some connections with either your own experiences or with reading that you've done or the training that you have. Well, you referenced the fact that this has occurred on many occasions in your life. Uh, narrative is very instructive. Can you give us a narrative as an example? You've already cited one with Alexander Fleming, but in your own career, um, sure. how it has manifested. Sure. I, I think the, one of the ones that, that affected me was uh, I coming out of, my, out of my residency, I had most of my interest in, in research was in patient-physician communication. Um, and I had learned uh, in, in one position that I had a lot about survey research, which you can't really use in patient-physician communication very much. So I I was kind of perplexed as to how I was going to use that. At one position I had in Philadelphia, we had a meeting on a weekly basis that was educational in in nature. And this one week they were um, talking about medical ethics and specifically about resuscitative efforts on the part of uh, physicians. And what if you had two people have a cardiac arrest at the same time and only the ability to resuscitate one of them, who would you decide to resuscitate and how would you make that decision? Bioethics. Bioethics. So that was not my major interest, um, but I sort of was listening to the uh, lecture and and sort of the discussion that was going on. And uh, there was discussion about basically, well, we make decisions based on first come, first serve, and then someone else chimed in with, no, we make the decision based on who needs it the most. And another person said, no, we make a decision based on who's going to be able to be resuscitated, et cetera. So it's a kind of a fatal triage decision. Right. And and that was there was a discussion going on. And then a resident raised his hand. There was medical residents in the group. One of the residents raised his hand and said, all of this discussion is moot. And I, I sort of went, what? Why? Because this is this was interesting to me. And he said, it's moved because we always make the decision based on who needs it the most. That's all we make the decision on. Nothing else matters. At which point I, I knew that this wasn't true because I had been a resident and I knew that residents held biases about certain types of people. And I decided that I needed to use my skills in survey research to prove that that was the case, developed a survey, um, administered to the residents, and um, basically found that the residents held significant biases. For example, if there were two people who had a cardiac arrest at the same time, one was 
say, a professional in some form. The other was a homeless person on the street. The professional would be the one who was resuscitated, even if medically everything else was the same. Wow. You did extensive research uh, regarding uh, internists and how they handled, if you will, bad news, uh, unwelcome news with patients. And yes. you did this uh, extremely thoroughly, uh, dealing with the, the amount of time, for instance, that persons would use. It was discovered that the average internist from your research spends about 27 minutes um, uh, with somebody if they're trying to convey unwelcomed information. Women have a proclivity to be much more sensitive to the approach. Um, people who have experienced illnesses themselves tend to be much more delicate and less like a potential bull in the proverbial china shop. Uh, but there are others who, who didn't have that capacity. Now, you went through you know, uh, very detailed methods, you got results, and you came to conclusions. I'm just curious, as kind of a sidebar, and we will get back to serendipitous issues, and, and you probably have a correlation even with that subject related to this. What was the conclusion you arrived at? Because we've just come from a very serious thing that you've just shared with us now, and it's a nice segue into your extensive research regarding internists and how they handle the negative. So in this particular research, I found that internists generally gave news in an appropriate fashion. Um, they were able to spend the time necessary. They started with the patient's perspective and, and gently informed them of the bad news. Um, those kinds of things was all done appropriately. The thing that was lacking was the need to send patients for support. And that that support could be um, having another person with them, going to a support group. Uh, those things were lacking. Uh, so we, we, I think, contributed to the physicians understanding that patients, when they are informed of bad news, need to be referred for some kind of supportive therapy. Going back to the serendipitous uh, aspect, and let me just first of all remind our listeners um, who you are, with whom I'm speaking. Uh, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, who's most happy today to have Dr. Neil J. Farber. Uh, Dr. Farber has worked for many years as internal medicine physician, 40 years. He's also been a researcher extensively. Uh, he's also served on a special committee for the FDA dealing with non-prescriptive uh, drug advisory. Uh, he's a recipient of many awards. He has written a book called Serendipity, Utilizing Everyday Unexpected Events to Improve Your Life and Your Career. With that said, um, how did you find a, a correspondence, or perhaps you didn't, I, I don't mean to presume anything, between the nitty-gritty of medical practice and yet being able to forge, if you will, um, a heightened appreciation for opportunity as it presents itself? Well, I mean, there were oftentimes uh, in, in my practice where serendipity played a role with individual patients sometimes. For example, I had a patient who came to me and said that he had been diagnosed with pneumonia on an, in an outside hospital, been given antibiotics for many weeks, had not improved, still was having fever um, and a cough. I said, well, what outside hospital? And he said, oh, you know, uh, I forget which hospital it was, but when he was on vacation and I said, well, where did you go on vacation? Um, being curious. And he said um, to Bakersfield, which is in the Central Valley in California. And I said, how long were you there? Oh, a month. We were visiting family for, for quite a while. And I said, and this fever and cough started while you were there? And he said, yes. And I made the connection to something I had learned quite a while ago. I had just been in California for only uh, a couple of years and didn't really come across this before. But I remembered that there is an entity in the Central Valley of California called Valley Fever, which is a fungal infection called coccidiomycosis. And I, I thought, this may be what I'm dealing with. I tested the guy and sure enough, he had coccidiomycosis. So it was that kind of thing that throughout my career, that, that led to the idea about serendipity. But sometimes uh, there were instances 
in the practice where something happened or I heard about something that led me to think about ways of, of exploring it from a research point of view. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, the word actually serendipity comes from Sanskrit, uh, simhala vipa, which means unexpected discovery. There's some etymological debate that the word was originated with a man called Horace Walpole in 1754, based on his reading of a, of a work called Three Princes of, of Serendip. We do know this uh, universally. It's come to mean unexpected discovery. How much of that do you suppose might be an issue of fate, pre-planned, orchestrated events on some divine level, perhaps? In other words, is it a matter of determinism or free will or just mere coincidence? Uh, well, I, I've been asked that. And I, you know, I don't know that anyone can answer that question for the population as a whole. I think it depends on your own personal philosophy. I do know that those unexpected events are occurring, whether it's just chaos in the, in the universe or the universe has some kind of order or there's a higher order ordaining that it happened. I, I honestly don't know. And, and I think each individual has to decide that for themselves, but that doesn't preclude the individual from recognizing it and taking advantage of it. So would it be fair to say that another way of considering your book uh, not you know trying to limit it by categorization, but it is an, another sub subtitle, if you will, could be looking for the good, finding the good, and using the good to the fullest. Oh, absolutely, yes. Have you been able to bring this out, for instance, in personal relationships? You know, we all deal with various persons in our lives, and they have great attributes, and they have detriments. Uh, and of course, the you know the definition of which would depend on the person making the evaluation. But um, I have found in my years on this planet that trying to look for the good, even in people who can be on occasion distasteful, um, is highly beneficial. Have you employed such technique yourself consciously? Well, I, I think I generally try to do that for, through most of my life. Um, sometimes it's difficult when you're faced with a person who particularly has some characteristics that are... Um, more than annoying, but rather distasteful. But I still try and look for the good if I can in, in people, yes. And, and I think that's an important aspect to the book in some ways, um, because I do explore some of, the, some of the relationships I've had and still do have uh, and how they were serendipitous and how they occurred. Well, Billy Shakespeare, in his work Hamlet, as you will recall, uh, gave us the famous soliloquy where he speaks forth and refers to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So um, the question is, should we take up arms against such things or should we just look at the negative and make it a positive? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that sometimes the slings and arrows can actually be, a, be turned into something beneficial. And, and I've had that happen in my life, you know, and, and, I, and when one aspect I talk about in the book is creating something from um, a, a adverse position. What happens when you're experiencing adversity and how you can sometimes turn it into something positive? And I've been able to do that at times. Well, let's go through the actual content of your book. Um, you begin with, uh, you know, the, the question, ready? Serendipity is all around us. And you talk about the everyday element of, uh, of serendipity, that it is far more experiential more frequently than people tend to recognize. But then you go on and you segue into the topic of getting your thinking cap on. Now, that's a, a term that we all experienced, I think, in school by well-intended teachers. But how does one get their thinking cap on in conjunction with a serendipitous opportunity? I, I think the main way is by exploring what mindfulness is and how one can be in tune with things around them much more when you, when you do have mindfulness, when you spend the time and spend the energy to explore the world around you. Uh, I'm sure that probably 85, 87% of our audience has heard the term um, mindfulness. Uh, it's been invoked for about 15 years steadily, although it obviously existed long before that. It's a, a derivative of, a, in a way, from Buddhism. And, and um, 
practicing the now, if you will. But how practically do you do it, doctor, uh, when you say, okay, I'm going to be mindful? For instance, during this interview right now, are you mindful on different levels of the conversation, what we're doing, your heart rate, your feelings, um, your intellect, your anticipation? Are you self-aware like that? Or do you find that it's easier not to be, if you will, receptive to all sectors of existence uh, because it might actually ironically impede? Well, I think yes to a degree in an in a interview situation. Sure, absolutely. Um, more importantly, uh, throughout my medical career, whenever I was about to see a patient, and especially one where I knew there was something I had to discuss of a serious nature, not necessarily bad news, but something um, that needed to be discussed with the patient, I would stop outside their uh, exam room, take a breath, count to 10, sort of feel myself where I was, know what I had thought I needed to discuss with the patient, and then go into the room so that I was sort of mentally prepared to be able to interact with that other individual. So this morning, before sitting down in front of my computer, um, I thought about uh, what I was going to be talking about, how I needed to convey the information so that people would understand it, because I had, I thought, a, an important message to get across and wanted to do so. You say that one must be open to all of this. Um, how do they flip a switch inside to become open to something? I mean, for instance, if you take a child, a, a little child, and you say, that's a flower, then they start to see flowers everywhere where adults don't. Like, flower, flower, mummy, flower, daddy, flower, flower. It doesn't recognize it on a pattern of wallpaper. So there is evidently a way we can awaken, indeed, our consciousness to, well, various um, delightful things such as the good to recognize the good how do you become open to it i with training um there are there are books about mindfulness one of the things we we do for example as a, a teaching tool with our students our medical students in terms of mindfulness is to give them a raisin and say to put it in their mouth and don't chew and and sit there with their eyes closed and think about the experience of having the raisin, what the texture is, um, the feeling, do you have any taste, et cetera. And that tunes them into sort of exploring the world around them, um, either closing or opening your eyes, depending on the situation and exploring the world around them. I, I had that happen with me not long ago. I was hiking in Arches National Park in Southeast Utah. And People were, you know, sort of power walking the area. And I, I was kind of curious because I was really just taking my time and, and luxuriating in this magnificent environment. I found out by way of a, another person hiking that basically the individuals in the park, usually the average is about two hours. And this is a park that has 18 miles of paved road, hundreds of miles of trail and over 2000 arches in the park. And someone spending all of two hours there, which it really is not enough to to get a feel for what the park is really about. And I'm not criticizing them. Some people just don't have the time and they want to at least see it. But you can't really uh, be mindful and come to terms with what's in front of you in that way. Um, as I came to this one arch called South Windows, uh, and it's a beautiful arch. It's one of the larger arches in, in the park and really beautiful. And I was standing there looking. But I took the time to look around the arch. And so I looked to the left and saw the different rock formations and looked to the right and was looking at the rock formation. And it suddenly dawned on me that the rock formation on the right formed the face of a scowling man uh, to my vision. And I, uh, I, I was really bemused by that. Talked to the rangers and others in the park, and no one had seen that before. And it was, I think, because I took the time to stop and really concentrate on that one aspect of the arch. So instead of smelling the roses, seeing the rocks. <laughs> right. I fully agree with you um, about the 
the uh, disservice we do to ourselves rushing through places. Um, when I lived in San Francisco, I was a member of the San Francisco Zoo, uh, a membership meaning that, you know, you just could return to it whenever you wanted to. But I did it with my children and I taught them because I didn't live very far, incidentally, from, from the San Francisco Zoo. I, we could literally some nights hear the animals. Um, I taught mm. all three of my boys to sit very, very still and not run from exhibition to exhibition. Now, all granted, we had the good fortune, speaking of fortune, of having a, a year's membership at a time, so we didn't have to rush and try and see everything. But if people would just go to the zoo, and incidentally, one of the best times to go to a public zoo is a rainy day. You see, humans object to rain, but animals usually don't. And so they're available and they're out. And so you can actually, it's a wonderful day to go to the zoo if you, if you don't mind getting a little wet. But animals will respond to an observer if the observer will stay there for about 20 or 25 minutes. Now, it's, you know, it's a discipline, but elephants will come to you. I've had lions come to me, all kinds of animals, because they recognize that this person isn't just you know going snap, snap with a camera and then running to something else. And so I think patience is undoubtedly a reward in of itself. So I I'm, I I'm completely concur with what you've just said. Uh, you said that curiosity doesn't always kill the cat. Does it sometimes kill the cat? Well, I, th I think the answer is, you know, a yes, <laughs> um, undoubtedly. There's um, sometimes when, for example, in, in dealing with patients, when you can be prying instead of being curious. Um, so you have to be careful. You have to accept the fact that basically if you come across something and you're curious, you may end up spending a lot of time doing it. Uh, you may end up pursuing this and, and, you know, is that killing the cat? Well, to someone who has the time, not at all, but if you're, if you're inherently busy doing other things, it, it, you have to either accept it or say, that's not really something I want to do. So in a, in a sense, yes. In the process of writing this book, what was the thing that struck you as the most amazing that you hadn't even thought about or entertained before actually sitting down to write it? How many examples there are, you know, both in not only in the literature, but in my own life. You know, you don't oftentimes think of something as being serendipitous. Sometimes you do. Um, but as I, as I sat down to write these experiences, I, I realized that much of the research I did came from these kinds of serendipitous events. Um, and it was incredible to, to see that my own life had been so uh, positively, greatly affected. You have pursued many different thoughts of, uh, of, of standpoints on social issues. And you might tell me, I don't know, that you serendipitously got involved with them. One of them is the issue of the death penalty. Um, yeah. You have spoken about, you know, physicians who are uh, entertaining the idea of or called upon perhaps to administer drugs that are lethal to people who are on death row. And there is always this issue of the Hippocratic Oath uh, that one will administer nothing that will cause harm uh, or death. And yet one is required to do that. And yet there's a mercy aspect to it where many physicians will say, well, if somebody's going to administer this stuff, by gum, by gosh, by golly, it better be somebody who tootin' well knows what they're doing to alleviate uh, inhumane treatment. Um, how did you explore this topic? Why were you attracted to this topic? And was that in of itself a serendipitous, uh, if you will, pursuit? And where have you arrived at your final conclusion? So basically, the, the, my, how I got interested in this um, was, was some people term it pseudo-serendipity. It's sort of what happened with Archimedes where he, he had a, a problem to solve. And this was trying to figure out the, uh, whether the king's crown was made of solid gold or whether there was silver mixed in. And he, he knew the, the density of gold and he knew uh, the weight of the crown, but he didn't know the volume of the crown, which is one of the elements he needed. And he couldn't very well melt down the crown. And that was the only way he could figure out to do it. So he kept on thinking about it, thinking about it, uh, decided he was too overwhelmed, went to, to go take a bath in, in the public baths. 
And as he got in, the water level rose and some water splashed over the side. He looked at it and immediately had the, the answer to his problem and raced home naked to um, do the same experiment with the crown and find out that the crown was made not only of gold, but silver, uh, which caused the punishment of the goldsmith. Well, you mentioned a very interesting term, I thought. You talked about pseudo-serendipity. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a kind of a superfluous, silly type of serendipity? For instance, my mind goes back to going into various ice cream parlors. And um, there used to be one. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have a flavor which was called serendipity. Uh, and I think it was more of a random, like whatever they couldn't get rid of, they, they put out on the cone for you. Um, do you find that there is a trivialization, if you will, if I can use such a term, uh, a trivializing of of a very important concept, serendipity. No, I, I think basically serendipity is serendipity. I mean, if it if it's happening, if it's an unexpected moment and somebody recognizes it, it is is curious about it and and makes something of it, even if it's not a major breakthrough. I think I think it's worth looking at as a serendipitous event. So, yes, the serendipity ice cream cone, yes, the buffalo wings aren't, you know, a major thing, but... Oh, we've never explained that, by the way. Would you mind telling the, the buffalo wing story? So we, 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 oh, had, sure. we teased people with that, but we didn't actually get to it. Sure. And then eventually I'll get back to my, my story about the capital punishment. But the, the buffalo wings are, um, they're called buffalo wings because they occurred in Buffalo. Uh, it was this place called the Anchor Bar. And um, one one night, the owner's son, who, who also worked in the bar, had come back from the movies with his friends and were hungry. Uh, this is like 11 o'clock at night. And there wasn't much in, in the kitchen to rustle up to give them. The only thing they had on hand were, uh, were chicken wings, which they usually use just for stock. Um, you know, uh, to, to or broth to be able to get the flavor from the chicken because there wasn't much meat on them. But uh, the, the guy who was there, his mother, who was um, also co-owner of the bar, decided to uh, fry them up in butter, add uh, hot sauce, and serve them to her son and his friends who loved them and uh, by the end of, I forget, a short period of time, they were selling 2,000 pounds of buffalo wings a day. I have to confess and tell you that when I first came to America, like many people who didn't grow up here, I actually thought the buffalo wings had something to do with buffalo meat that people put sauce on. <laughs> I didn't know, uh, you know, until later about the origin of, of the city itself. Well, let's get back to the death penalty. We, we broached that subject and we did drift right. off the side. So... Um, uh, in the pursuit of this very, very heavy topic, um, you, you were speaking about how something can be, you know, kind of a pseudo serendipitous, but you did delve into it. And what did you finally conclude? And uh, what are your observations of your fellow physicians regarding this very heavy matter of should those who are facing the death penalty have doctors or, or can a doctor, having taken the Hippocratic Oath, uh, perform such, I don't want to say service, but act of uh, perhaps humanely, but taking somebody out of this world to stop the heart. So let me start with uh, how I got there. So uh, by pseudocinerdipity, we mean that somebody's thinking about a problem and, and comes up with an answer. Well, I was thinking about what my next research was going to be. And I had done a number of studies looking at physician's duality of obligations, that is the obligation to an individual patient versus the obligation to society as a whole. And I I was sort of playing with it in my mind and thinking, well, in what case would a physician do something for society that would be the most detrimental to a patient or a person? The thing that really came to mind was the death penalty. I mean, there's nothing more um, ominous to Grim. a person or a patient than, yeah. than killing them. Um, and I, I began to do some research about it, um, recognized that both the American Medical Association and the American College of Physicians, which is the 
uh, group that all internists belong to, have in their code of ethics the statement that physicians should not be involved in any aspect of the death penalty um, because of the fact that it puts the physician in a position in which uh, they are basically causing the death of a person. And, and some people argue about the, you know, that it's merciful for a physician to do it because somebody else might botch it, et cetera. But that's not, that can't be a concern of the, of the physician, according to those groups. Um, so I was interested in seeing, well, the, the American College of Physicians, the American Medical Association say, don't do it. But how do physicians feel about it? I, I thought about the fact that if I was going to ask physicians, would you participate? Everybody would say no, of course. So that would be a nothing study. So instead, I, I asked physicians, would you condone uh, your colleagues being involved? And much to my surprise, over half of the physicians we surveyed condone other physicians being involved in the death penalty. And there were some things that were associated, including um, the belief that the death penalty decreased the murder rate and whether someone was in favor of the death penalty. Um, so it was, there were biases involved. I then decided that the next study had to be done, which was to actually ask physicians, would you yourself be involved and found that actually about a third of physicians would be involved themselves, um, which is, again, in contradiction to what the American Medical Association and the American, uh, American College of Physicians advocated. I want to ask you about bias. Um, obviously, logically, everyone has a bias, but how do you work against your own biases when practicing medicine? I mean, one has to be conscious of them in the first place, do they not? Yes, that's exactly how you work against them, by becoming conscious of them. And uh, I'm not going to ask you with any specificity, because I don't want to put you on the spot, but in working <laughs> through your own biases, were you ever shocked by discovering some that you didn't know you had? Um, I think that probably occurs to everybody. You know, there's a Harvard test that determines your um, implicit biases, and uh, almost everybody has biases that we don't know about. The, the the goal as a physician at least is to bring them to mind so that you try and treat everybody fairly or if you can't then not take on patients who have that particular attribute I would like to go back to where we came in regarding your book and let me remind our audience that you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, your host, and I'm delighted to be speaking and have been speaking with Dr. Neil J. Farber, author of Serendipity, Utilizing Every Day Unexpected Events to Improve Your Life and Your Career. I want to go back to the, uh, the beginning, the inception of this interview, at least, where I asked you about that moment you sprang out of bed and you went to the typewriter, letting your wife sleep, and uh, began to write the book. What caused you to do it? Was it an impulse? Was it uh, some kind of um, external nudging of some sort? You, you felt compelled to do it, and that takes energy, and that takes drive. And to finish something takes discipline, although you've certainly proven your discipline with your education and some 60-odd technical papers you've written. Um, what caused you to do it when you really analyze it? I, I think what happened is, I, I don't know why, I think I had a dream, although I don't remember the dream, that put everything in context, which when I woke up, I, I was excited about it. Um, and when I, when I looked at it, I thought to myself that, you know, this has been a major aspect of my career and my life, that I, I felt I needed to put it in context and, and give a message to others because I felt it was important enough. Let me, and, and the way I thought it was important enough was going back to, to Alexander Fleming, you know, what if Fleming, instead of being mindful and observant and curious, had looked at those plates, seen there was mold and went, Oh darn. And just kept on tossing them and didn't pay attention to the rings or didn't, wasn't curious, saw the rings, but went, eh, who cares, and kept on throwing them. Um, 
it may have been years. It may have been not at all until penicillin and maybe even other antibiotics would have been invented. And it may have been that many, many people would have died unnecessarily. And, and I felt, okay, I'm not going to save the world, <laughs> but at least I think I need to give this message to those who can save the world to do so. And, and particularly at a time right now. So you really, in a sense, are trying to compel all of us to see. I'm reminded of um, a Frenchman, I believe it was. It may have been a Belgian or somebody. I think it was a Frenchman who walked through some briars with corduroy trousers on and mm. found that the briars were sticking to his corduroy. And he decided to, again, uh, like Alexander Fleming, to take the little things that had attached themselves to his corduroy trousers and to look at them under a microscope. And upon doing that, he found a particular pattern that worked and he, he, he patented it. And we know it as Velcro, which was certainly employed in, this, in the space program uh, with NASA and uh, has been a savior for every parent in the world that has children under the age of three. <laughs> you don't have to lease up their shoes. You just put the, the Velcro on it. But I think that that's another example of what you're talking about, Dr. Farber, of, of being awake, being present, seeing and appreciating Let's go back to another thing that was mentioned earlier. Um, I had asked you uh, in reference to one of the titles of, of your chapters in your book, how do you know when to fold them? Folding them and acknowledging that it's time to fold them or to give up can be a painful experience. And uh, it, it sometimes can imbue us with a feeling of, of failure in general. How do you overcome that? And then what is the next phase after that realization? So... Um you know, sometimes sometimes the failure may not be a real true failure. And sometimes you have to look at just the positive benefits. Have, have I done anything for myself or for society, even, even if it wasn't successful all the way through? Sometimes if it's a failure, you can think about using it for something else. I, had, I will advocate this. Anybody can take it if they want. One of the, one of the fads that died was, um, and very quickly actually, were foam houses, houses made of polyurethane foam. Now, back in the day, polyurethane was, uh, in a liquid, was toxic. And formaldehyde had some respiratory issues. But once it became a solid, it was actually non-toxic, except that it was flammable. And they could add a an anti-flammable agent to it. But people got scared of it and, and withdrew. Well, polyurethane is now not made with formaldehyde. It's not toxic at all, but we still don't have foam houses. Well, it's probably a good thing because they deteriorate over time and it's a mess. But what if we had foam houses temporarily for people who are homeless? Mm. Um, I saw that there were some cities had started constructing small house, small units for people who are homeless. Um, I think it would be a lot cheaper if, and, and easier to do if they had foam houses, as an example. So sometimes you can make something of it. And sometimes if you can't, basically it's time to mourn it, which you sometimes have to do. And, and, then, and then go on from there. What's the, what's the next step or the next thing I want to be involved in? So I must ask you, um, now that you've, you've jogged the thought in my mind, what is the next step for Neil J. Farber, MD? Hmm. Well, um, that's a good question. I'm going to be continuing as a docent at the Air and Space Museum, which I adore as it's always been a sort of hobby. And now I actually get to play there and with, with instead of little model airplanes, and spacecraft, real big ones. I'm a NASA uh, enthusiast beyond belief, so I can fully identify and, and relate to what you're saying. Uh, we, we happen to have the Apollo 9 command module, so it's very, very cool. Oh, man, that's cool. You know what? If I was in that position, I'd love it when, it, when the public was gone. <laughs> I could just uh, ogle it with my eyes and just enjoy it uh, with some degree of privacy. That must be great. Yeah, I, I, I get there about a half hour before the public comes and just take in everything in the oh, museum. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and doing this, um, I, I want to advocate for, for this 
for the book and for people, re- even if they don't buy it, I don't care about that, but, but that they read it. That's the most important thing to me. And I, I did for fun, which might turn into something. I don't know. My publisher has it. I wrote a novel um, that was just sort of a, a, a side thing and sort of a challenge to myself. I, I was bored during COVID and, and not much to do. I couldn't go to the museum, of course. And um, so I, I joined a writing group and um, they challenged you to, to do some creative writing. And I, I wrote a chapter and got good feedback. And I said, you know what, I'm going to challenge myself and see if I can write a novel out of this. And I did so. Well, there's an example of your openness. Um, One of the things that has definitely come through in this interview with you, uh, Dr. Farber, is uh, an openness, uh, almost an innate optimism, it sounds like, uh, within your disposition and psyche, which is welcomed. We want to have a large array of Americans on Watching America. And uh, as I've just said, you are certainly a positive, optimistic one and also a very caring one because, as you've indicated, your real mission, if I may use that word, is to awaken in Americans the opportunities that are before them that perhaps otherwise would go unrecognized. So in that regard alone, you've done us a great service, as will the book. The book is entitled Serendipity, Utilizing Everyday Unexpected Events to Improve Your Life and Career, and perhaps, if I may add, family and experiential encounters wherever they may occur. The author is Neil J. Farber, MD, doctor. Thank you so much for having joined us on Watching America, and we wish you great success, uh, not only with this venture, but also perhaps your future novel. We'll keep an eye out for that one. Thank you very much, and and thank you for the opportunity for talking and, and presenting this to the people. Thank you. God bless. It's been great to have you. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to thank you for making this program possible by your kind and generous contributions. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.